Good morning, Snoqualmie. Is that how you say it? Snoqualmie. I have no accent, so it's a bit difficult. Aaron has a lot of confidence in me. He hasn't given me a translator, so I hope you can cope with this. Um, it was great going through seminary with Aaron. Aaron typifies what I think Master Seminary was about, which is regular guys fighting their way through who just want to preach the word and understand that Jesus Christ builds his church and our job is to proclaim his word. And I would hope that his church, that you would measure his success as a pastor by his faithfulness to what he's been called to preach and the people, his love for the people he's been called to shepherd. Um, I first met Aaron, actually. Um, I got his attention. Aaron's not telling you this, but because um, I was trolling him before I knew what trolling was. And um, I was at the back of the classroom one day, and I just said, you know, uh, those episodes four, five, and six in Star Wars, they just, they were okay. But when The Phantom Menace came out, that's when it got really good. And at that point, Aaron spontaneously combusted, and I had his undivided attention from that day on. <laughs> but Aaron is a dear friend and someone who, just like me, we just fought our way through seminary. Um, with a desire uh, not to make a career out of it necessarily, but to honour the God who called us to preach. And that's what I want to do today, to deal with a really important passage. Every passage we say is important. This is critical for this time, the time we find ourselves in, I think. Exodus uh, 34, verses 5 to 8. Is everyone understanding me okay? Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8. <clears throat> Give you a little road map of where we're going. Okay, so my outline is, three-point outline, is simply that God declares who He is, God defines who He is, and God demonstrates who He is. Right? Those three points, God declares, defines, and demonstrates who he is. That's, um, that's a necessary thing today. I said to someone just yesterday, I said, the thing now I look forward to most about heaven is no fake news. We live in a world full of lies, don't we? I mean, the lying is just gone off the charts in the last couple of years. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. So we have fake, fake news, false narratives, different versions of reality. And the church is not immune from that. We've heard, you know how an idolater begins their sentences? They begin their sentences with the words, to me, God is like this. Right? We want to define God on our terms. And we need to go back to what God has said about himself because it is his disclosure of himself that matters. That is our benchmark. That's what we go by. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's read our passage. Exodus 34 verses 5 to 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, that is Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Here we have God's disclosure of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, we should just try and get a little bit of context here um, for what, what's, what set the scene for this, where God has revealed himself uh, to Moses. And at the end of um, Exodus 31, just a, a few chapters earlier, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with Ten Commandments version 1.0, you might say. And what he saw was absolutely shocking to him. What did he see? What did he come down from the mountain to see? So the Israelites dancing around a golden calf that Aaron had made. And that was shocking to me because I don't come from a Christian home. I, God graciously saved me when I was about 20 in the military in Australia. And I started, I eventually became convicted, okay, it's God's word, I need to study that. So I started Genesis working my way through. And see, I'm that naive kid who used to grow up, who used to wake up in the morning and uh, the cartoons, it was, it was all about for me, watch the cartoons. And I would think to myself, I actually would think this, <laughs> maybe today is the day that the coyote will catch the road run. But it's the same thing over and over. And it's like that as you read through the Old Testament, isn't it? God is faithful to Israel. Israel rebels against God. He's faithful again. And I remember when Moses got these commands and he'd gone up and the people had said, we're going to do everything God tells us. And I'm thinking, surely this time, this is my naive thinking of the Bible, surely this time, this is the time they're going to do what they're told. But no, he comes down with the Ten Commandments. They're dancing around this golden calf. And that's what Moses finds. We look here... um, You know, it is amazing, isn't it, when you think that that God manifested himself so strongly and he saved them in so many powerful ways and yet they keep rebelling. And that is the point, is that um, in the Bible, the hero is God (laughs) and the villain is us. You know, if you look at the white hats and black hats in your Bible stories, you're going to be disappointed unless you realize that God himself, the the author of his word, is, is the hero. When... Moses, what he found when he returned to his people were they were dancing around an idol of their own invention, their own false version of reality, the golden calf. Just jump back to Exodus 32, verses 23 to 24 for a second. This is Aaron's explanation for his golden calf. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they, I mean, this is, this is a classic child's explanation. This is a classic snowflake explanation. This is a classic social media explanation for something happening. Um, so they gave the gold to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. 
Other than that, I can't really tell you too much about what happened. <laughs> you know, Aaron's saying this, this calf has come out of the fire. Those of us who have kids known when some disaster happens in our house. What happened? I don't know. I was just minding my own business and this exploded. This thing burst. This mess occurred. And Aaron says to Moses, so the people that gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire and a cow came out. And, and then he goes on, um, what is it, um, is that he's blaming, you know, he's blaming the people. That, that's how we roll, isn't it? That, nothing much has changed today. We see that today on social media, people doubling down on their sins. We see it in the media, we see it in the government. It's not my fault. We've heard El Presidente say a number of times, I take full responsibility, but he begins sentences often with that. And what follows the but is who's really I'm going to blame for this. We don't want to take ownership for what we do. But interesting question about this because of this golden calf. It prompts a fascinating question, I think, and that is um, why was there a second commandment in the Ten Commandments? These commandments that Moses had crushed as he came down from the mountain. Um, the first commandment, you shall worship the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God supremely. You won't have any other gods. The second commandment is a prohibition against idols, isn't it? So The question is, isn't the second commandment kind of like the flip side of the first commandment? Kind of like the corresponding truth? Worship God supremely. Have no idols. Now, why is the second commandment necessary? Why isn't the second commandment redundant? Does anyone want to have a go at answering that? Well, the answer is because you can make an idol out of the one true God. So it's saying you shall worship the one true God. Also, you shall not make an idol out of anything, including him. You shall not make him into an idol. And that's what Aaron had done because when he unveiled the golden calf, he said, Behold the God who brought you forth out of Egypt. And that's how God describes himself throughout the Torah, throughout the first five books, is I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. So Aaron then constructs this golden calf as a, his representation of that God. And God says, you're not to do that. That's why one of the things Aaron will point out next week about Roman Catholicism is wrong is that it is full of representations of God and what they deem him to be like. But God is not to be fashioned into an image. He is, he is not like anything on this earth. He is, he is unique. He fills the heavens. We cannot possibly represent what he is like in a physical sense. He says, you know, that, that no one can see him and live. We will get to see him in our glorified bodies one day, but until then we hear from him. But just because we don't have the ability to melt metal and fashion images doesn't make us immune from the same error. We can fall into that same trap of idolatry that Aaron did, can't we? The God who affirms gay marriage is a modern golden calf all sorts of professing believers dancing around it. 
we commit Aaron's and Israel's sin every time we begin a sentence with, well, to me, God is like this, right? We are fashioning a God in our own image. It's what we see in John 6 when the crowds following Jesus demanded food to, feed their, to fill their belly but had no interest in knowing the bread of life. You know, if, if you're Jesus, then bring some food down. If you are the Messiah, then do this trick for us. Meet our demands of godness. We see it at the cross, don't we? When all the mockers and the scorners around the cross, they're saying, if you are the Christ, come down. If you are the Christ, do this. If you're, if you're God, then meet my parameters. And that's what atheists do when they say, if there's really a God, where's the evidence? Show me the evidence. Well, in that equation, the problem is who's in the seat of the accused and who sits in the seat of judgment? Well, we're letting the atheist sit in the seat of judgment, aren't we? He's demanding evidence and we're saying, okay, I'd better provide him some evidence and see if he'll then pass judgment on whether this meets his criteria or not. But on the day of judgment, it's not going to be like that, is it? God's going to be in the judgment seat. We don't want to reverse, we've got to need to be very careful that we don't reverse those tables or allow people uh, to do that. You know, in, in the beginning, God created man in his image and ever since then, we've been trying to return the favour, haven't we? Fashioning a God in our own image. I'm reminded of a debate that happened while Aaron and I were at seminary between the Calvinist uh, Michael Horton, the Arminian Roger Olson, and Roger Olson during the debate the thing that shocked me, I mean, this absolutely floored me, was Roger Olson during the debate said, if I found out that the God of Calvinism is true, I could never worship that God. That's one of the most frightening things I've ever heard said by a professing believer. Not because he's an Arminian, but because he has decided that he will only worship God on his terms. And what we're seeing in our passage today is that God sets the terms. God declares, defines and demonstrates who he is. Calvin was right when he said man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. That's where we are living today. This is a great reminder of the importance of presenting and knowing God in all his glorious attributes as he presents himself in Scripture. The true believer, the true worshipper, seeks God's face and not his hand. These people were really seeking his hand in John 6. You know, if you're really, if you're really the Messiah, bring some food down for us. They're wanting his benefits. But we may initially respond uh, to the gospel by fleeing the wrath to come, and that's a good reason. But if we are really God's people, then we'll seek uh, to know him. And in fact, Jesus equated eternal life with knowing the one true God in his high priestly prayer, which was mentioned earlier in the Sunday school class today, that um, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that's exactly what we see with Moses. Even in the midst of such a catastrophic rebellion, Israel's in big trouble. They're in big trouble. God's patience is at the limit with them. And Moses did not pray for God to fix the problem or to change the circumstances. 
instead he expresses his desire to know God more in Exodus 33:18. If you look there, you'll see Moses' prayer to God is, please show me your glory. I want to know you. Now God's wrath was burning hot. He was set on their utter destruction as he warned Moses in verses 9 and 10 of Exodus 32. And Moses had to intercede on behalf of Israel. And he didn't intercede for the sake of the people. He interceded for the sake of God's name. (coughs) It also needs to be said that this is not an example of God changing his mind or rejigging his sovereign plan when Moses intercedes for Israel. Moses intercedes for your great name. You've made promises. You've made a promise. There's also a promise that a Messiah will one day come. A a saviour will come. The promise um, to Abraham, the promise to Eve in the garden for the seed of the woman. You can't wipe out our people. You know, you've made a promise. And that's true. And, and, And this is not a case of God changing his mind or rejigging his sovereign plan. The fact that God's wrath didn't completely destroy Israel is completely consistent with his covenant faithfulness and eagerness to pardon pertinent sinners. Riken comments, God did what he had intended to do from the beginning. He answered the prayer of the mediator whom he had appointed by saving the people he had chosen from all eternity. God is being consistent with himself, being consistent with his nature. And God was about to reveal himself to Moses as described in our text today. A declaration, a definition and demonstration of who he is. Words that would be quoted or referred to dozens of times in the Old Testament by people like King David, prophets like Joel and Jonah. And God responded to Moses' request to be shown his glory in Exodus 33:19 to 23. What we find out is that God's glory is dangerous. Have, let's have a look at that. Exodus 33, verses 19 to 23. Just as we're setting the context here. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God informed Moses of the impossibility of him ever surviving a full frontal encounter with God's glory. You know, Aaron's golden calf was the opposite. This is a God who is heard and not seen. And Aaron provided an idol that is seen and not heard. The stupidity of idols, right? We have to carry them, lug them around. Behold the power of this great God. We have to pick him up and take him to our next location. We see him, we can't. God is a speaking God. Now God mercifully hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and concealed much of his glory in order that Moses might just see the perimeter of his glory. By the way, this, this, this thing about that it, no one can see me and live, great reminder of in, I have a charismatic background. I can remember they used to have these laughing revivals where people would have an encounter with God. It would make them laugh hysterically. And one of the compelling arguments that this is not really an encounter of God is the fact that when people encounter God in the Bible, they think they're going to die. 
not think it's hysterically funny. But it, um, in our passage here, it leads us up to where we are in our passage. And, and by the way, in Exodus 34, 1-4, we see the pattern of divine inspiration. God calls Moses to prepare for a second giving of the Ten Commandments. And we see the blueprint for divine inspiration of Scripture. In Exodus 34.1, God says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Yet later in the chapter, in verse 27, we read that it was Moses who wrote the commandments. So who wrote them? God or Moses? Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul? God? This is, this is a pattern we see of, of what Peter would call, you know, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we're seeing here this pattern of what, how Scripture is made, that God speaks through his people. And God certainly did speak as we come to our text beginning in verse 5. Verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So the first thing we learn is that God is a speaking God. God declares who he is. God speaks on his own behalf concerning who he is and what he is like. We don't get to do that. God reveals here that he is a speaking God. Moses wanted to see him, but rather than telling us what he saw, the Bible tells us what Moses heard, what God said about himself. As I mentioned, if you're a believer, one day you will see him, your glorified body, but until then, he is to be heard and he has spoken to us in his word. Moses didn't start with, to me, God is like this. God spoke and Moses listened. Are we listening? God has chosen to speak to us in his word. <clears throat> we have that advantage over Moses. Scripture was coming together. We actually have the written word and the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have, we have something greater than Moses had. We have an advantage over Moses. <clears throat> God is a speaking God. And he left us a book, not a series on Netflix, Right? And it's in his word that he declares who he is. I'm reminded of that old bumper sticker. You know, when I came to America, there's this bumper sticker. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Who's seen that bumper sticker? I said, that was an interesting one. But really it should say, God said it, God said it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. God has spoken. He is a speaking God. So the first thing, God declares who he is. Secondly, God defines who he is. Let's go to the second half of verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, note here, these are attributes that are entirely dependent <coughs> on Adam's fall and ongoing sin. They are attributes that would forever remain hidden in a world without sin. And yet God is determined to put them on display. God could have spoken about that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere, that he's omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, that he's omniscient, that he knows everything. But what does he focus on? He focuses on these attributes 
that the Israelites really needed to hear about. They're in big trouble, right? And he says he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You ever considered, we often have to do the what-ifs. What if Adam and Eve had never sinned? What would the world be like today if there was no fall? We think the world would be a nicer place. But if you considered this, that if these attributes of God, that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, a forgiving God, in a world without sin, would we ever know those things about God? That's why the fall was necessary, because God deemed it necessary in order to display these attributes that he wanted to be known. He wants to be known. The, the, the key story in God's word is God glorifying himself. And he redeems a people to himself to bring a lot of that glory. But in a world without sin, we would never know this about God. We would never know that he is a forgiving God, would we? Because he would have any sin to forgive. Just, just, just consider that. That's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lofty thought. It's a great thought because it helps us to understand or get more perspective on God's plan in Scripture and why he allowed a fall to make known these things about himself. So, God pronounces his name, the Lord, the Lord. Repeating it for emphasis. It's more than just a title. It, it represents his entire being in nature. He is the God of creation who covenanted with Moses at the burning bush, saying he is who he is and this is who he is, what he's saying here. Merciful. After the gross idolatry of Israel, this is a comforting reminder that God is compassionate and sympathetic. The more we grasp our sin, the more it magnifies the mercy of God in not giving us what we deserve. <coughs> Instead, God is gracious. A lot of people talk about grace in the church today, but if you ask them to define it, they'll struggle. And grace is God's unmerited favour. And if we are to understand God's grace, we'd better understand or why we don't deserve his favour. It's because we're sinners. Right? And the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And they are magnified the more we understand our sin. You know, because the more like the woman who was wiping Jesus' feet and the Pharisee next to him didn't understand. Jesus said, who rejoices the most? He is forgiven of much or he is forgiven of little? Right? The more we understand our sin before God, the more his mercy and grace is magnified, the more greatly we appreciate it, as that woman did. So mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is him giving us what we don't deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. Uh, again, we see also in this passage that God is slow to anger. <clears throat> That's good news. And the empirical proof that God is slow to anger is that we're all here right now, right? <laughs> he is slow to anger. He has to put up with a lot. Now, I, I would, I, when I first read the Bible, I would think <clears throat> people would marvel at the wrath of God and his punishment of things. And as I read the Old Testament, I started to realize, now that's not the mystery. The mystery is, how does God put up with these people? They just keep rebelling against him. 
and then the penny started to drop. I'm like that too. I'm like that too. He is slow to anger. He, he delays his wrath. It comes like in the days of Noah, eventually came, but he delays it. And that's the mystery of the Old Testament really is that why did God delay his wrath so long? 120 years while Noah built the ark. No one repented. In Egypt, 400 years of slavery until the sins of the Canaanites was filled up. <coughs> so he's slow to anger. Our merciful, gracious, long-suffering God also abounds in love and faithfulness. The Hebrew words here are often translated as loving kindness and truth. God's covenant love for his people here is connected with his unwavering commitment to that love. And we, to people sometimes say, you know, well, all you've got to do is love God and love people. But living the Christian life, living the church life, what do we learn? Loving is, love is the hard part of the Christian walk, isn't it? It's hard to love people. Having lived with myself for 52 years, I'm difficult to love. You know, loving is the hard thing, but God's commitment to his love is just unwavering. It's a relentless love in spite of us. That, that, that should cause us to marvel. Once he promises to love, he just keeps on loving. He cannot break a promise. And that's what we see about God defining himself there, that God defines himself as merciful, as gracious, relentlessly loving, slow, to anger and that's good news for us it's good news for the people of israel at that time because they needed a god like that god defines himself and that self-definition would ultimately become a physical reality in the person of jesus christ so god declares who he is and god alone defines who he is and thirdly god demonstrates who he is See in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God declares who he is, God defines who he is, and here we see God demonstrates who he is. And the first thing he demonstrates is his steadfast love. Why did God set his love on Israel? Because he chose to love them. And he chose to maintain that love and faithfulness to the promises he made. What is so amazing is that what God had to endure, endure in order to maintain that steadfast love. It's the same for us. Christ is the embodiment of steadfast love. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. And Christ's life, death and resurrection is the ultimate demonstration of his steadfast love. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If anyone says, I don't, we shouldn't preach about sin, we should preach about God's love, that person's pants are on fire. Liar, liar. Because the very definition of God's love is bound up in our self sinfulness is it not he demonstrates his love in that while we were sinners christ died for us so you cannot talk about the love of god without talking about our guilt we live in a therapeutic society doesn't want to do that but that is the reality 
Christ's life, death and resurrection, ultimate demonstration of a steadfast love. For God so loved the world. In 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he also loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that I often say to people, it's not self-esteem that we need. We need Christ-esteem. Christ's death does not prove that we were incredibly valuable. It just magnifies the greatness of God that the lengths that he was willing to go to to die for us in spite of ourselves. That's the value that, that, that God was willing to pay. Not that we were worth so much that he would die, but that God was willing to pay so hefty a price to purchase the redemption of sinners like us. How great is his steadfast love. And he has demonstrated that love ultimately at the cross. Thirdly, God demonstrates, uh, well, here we see also God demonstrates forgiveness. The Hebrew verb here means to lift or carry, a picture of what God, God does with the sins of his people. Lifting the burden and carrying it away. I've always thought it's interesting that the Bible says he separates our sins as far as the north is from the south. No, east is from the west. Interesting thing. If you go north, if you keep going north, is there a point where you stop going north? You start going south. But if you go east, is there a point where you stop going east? I think it's significant that he says the east is from the west because they just go on forever. They're infinite. You keep going west, you keep going east. Jesus embodied that forgiveness of God. Um, we see actually an interesting that you'll notice in some of the encounters with Pharisees, they didn't really marvel at his miracles. He would raise someone from the dead but he, or, 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 or heal someone, but that he forgave sin. Pharisees were wrong about most things, but they were right about this. This should have shocked them, that he forgives sin. Because if we understood our sin, <laughs> you know, I, I often use this illustration that, um, you know, lying. Well, we've all lied. We might not think it's that big a deal. But actually, if, if, I, if I lie to my daughter, she can do nothing to me. If I lie to my wife, I'm, I'm going to sleep on the sofa. Now, if I lie to my boss, he can fire me. And if I lie to the government, they can throw me in jail. Send me on a boat back to the prison state of Australia. Convict colony once was. But what changed? Did the sin change in those scenarios? No. The consequence changed. And it changed in proportion to the authority sinned against. You tracking with me? The higher the authority, the greater the consequence. What if God is an infinite authority? How great is that offense? That is why there is a hell. Because God is an infinite authority. And when we sin against him, it's not just the sinfulness of sin, it's also the authority we have sinned against. And that is what makes the forgiveness. When you grasp that, that should astound us that God could forgive us. Jesus is described in Hebrews as a compassionate high priest. Not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He has tasted of the human experience. He knows what it's like to be us, but without sinning. And therefore, he is a compassionate high priest 
we can come to who understands the, what it means to be human. God demonstrates forgiveness. He also forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, it says there. And that's pretty much an all-encompassing statement on sin. Not doing what you should do, doing what you shouldn't do, and every kind of debauchery and perversion and iniquity in between. He forgives all of that. There is no sin he cannot forgive. It should not be lost on us that Moses would later encounter the incarnation of all these attributes on the top of another mountain, Mount Transfiguration. And we also encounter the living Christ through his word. So we see there that God keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So God has declared who he is, he's defined who he is, he has demonstrated who he is and he is all of these things. And if I was a warm, fuzzy preacher, I could stop right there. I could stop right there if I didn't want to teach you the whole counsel of God, if I wanted to shield you from the uncomfortable truths. But there is a yet or a but in some translations that follows here and we need to deal with that. We can't go around it and that's the importance of preaching verse by verse, isn't it? We can't dodge the parts we don't like. So God keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin Yet, who will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Just a quick note on that last part. It should be said here, some people, charismatics like to talk about generational curses, visiting the sins on children and the grandchildren. But what that is simply saying is sin has consequences in this life. And the sins that we do can have ramifications in the lives of our children. We've all seen that, haven't we? Egregious sin spilling over for generations after that of people suffering the consequences of those sins. But that's what that is talking about. It's not talking about children being held accountable for the sins of their parents or parents being held accountable for the sins of their children. Scripture is clear about that. Simply saying that sin has generational consequences and there are repercussions for what we do now in the future. But I want to focus in on the yet. It's a commitment to God's righteousness and judgment. Yet, after all these wonderful things we've heard about God, He's his loving kindness, his forgiveness. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Here's the dilemma. This is the real dilemma of the Bible. How does God demonstrate to us his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his kindness without compromising his justice? How does he do that? And sometimes when people say, how can a loving God send people to hell? I'll respond, I can answer that question, but it's the wrong question. And first I want to help you to ask the right question, because this is the right question. How does God love us? How does God forgive us? How does God demonstrate his kindness to us without compromising his righteousness, his commitment to his justice? 
He is not a flawed judge. He is a perfectly just judge and all sin must be dealt with. He can by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If God is to turn the other way and wink at sin, then he is no longer, he ungods himself. His commitment to his character is too great. So how is he to do that? He can by no means clear the guilty. That is the question. How does God do that? How does God do that? And that's the first half of evangelism, really, I think, is helping people to ask the right question. The second part is answering the right question. God demonstrates all of these attributes in harmony, his justice and his mercy in the person and work of Christ. Just turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3. 21 to 26, we're going to read that. Romans 3 verses, 21 to 26. Paul speaking here, but now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see that that Christ, in Christ God is able to be both just and the justifier of the sinner because Christ has fulfilled the law that we have broken and he has suffered the punishment that we deserve. We need to be careful when we talk about justice. Justice is a real buzzword today. We've got all kinds of people demanding justice. That often reflects a failure to understand who we are and who God is. I used to work in a factory in Denmark and there was a union representative who used to always come up to me and tell me that he'd been fighting for justice. And I would say, no, you haven't. He'd say, yes, I have. No, I haven't. No, you haven't. He said, if you got justice, you would be a scorch mark on the ground right now. You need mercy. Demands, we need to be very careful when we make demands for justice as sinful people. But God is committed to his justice. And the way he maintains his justice and demonstrates his mercy is through the person and work of Christ. Through a substitute suffering the wrath of God in our place. So there's two types of people in the world. Those who will pay for all their sins for all of eternity in hell and those who've had their sins paid for by a substitute. Let's just look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That there is saying that God, as the MacArthur Study Bible says so beautifully, God treated Christ as if he lived our life 
so that he could treat us as if we lived his life. He calls on us to repent and to put our trust in him, our trust in the saviour, our trust in the substitute. That cross was not meant for him. It was meant for Barabbas and ultimately is meant for us. We need to see that the cross was meant when we trust in Christ, we are trusting in the substitute who has done it on our behalf. That's why it's stupid to say things like live the gospel. We cannot because the gospel is about someone who has done something that we can never do. He went to the cross. The cross means that God was treating Christ as if he lived our life so that he could treat us as if we lived his life. And he calls on us to repent and trust him because we'll be one of those two types of people. Those who've had their sins paid for for all eternity and then God can be just and the justifier of us, the ungodly. Why? Because his justice has already been satisfied in the saviour, the substitute, the sacrifice. Which type of person are you? But here we've seen in this passage Moses, God revealing himself to Moses, God declaring who he is, God defining who he is, God demonstrating who he is. What is the correct response? Moses gives us the correct response in verse 8 and closing. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Once God had declared, defined and demonstrated who he is to Moses, Moses humbled himself and worshipped God on his terms. That's why I've called this message today, God on God's terms. We ought to worship him on his terms, not ours. In a world of fake news and fake versions of reality and idolatrous definitions of God that in no way square with how he has revealed himself, we are to worship God on his terms. He made us, he owns us, he sustains us and he graciously withholds his just wrath, giving us time to repent and place our faith in the one who perfected God's law and satisfied his just wrath. How dare we refuse him the worship that he rightly demands. Lord, thank you for the opportunity today to, to stand here as a spokesman for you. I am nothing but a voice speaking what you have spoken. Lord, we are here today to worship you on your terms and you are worthy of all our worship and praise. Give us a love for you and for your word and for your own expression of who you are and what you do and that we would worship you in accordance with that and we would testify of you in accordance with that in this lost and dying world. Lord, this world needs truth. This world is awash with lies and sin needs your truth. Help us to be those vessels of truth, of your truth. May you be glorified, Lord, in our worship of you and our testimony of you to this lost and dying world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Will you